house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. That's how long we stay. We do whatever it takes. Says the man in the air-conditioned room. They bank on your apathy. They plan strategies around it. Charlie Tech is alive. It's here to my boys. The problem is not with the people that started this. The problem is with us, who do nothing. It was all right there if we had bothered to connect the dots. Do you want to win the war on terror? Yes or no? This is the quintessential yes or no question of our time. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that knows that if you want to make Christopher Columbus sexy, you start by making him French. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, senior writer at Decider.com, Joe Reed. I'm here with my co-host, entertainment writer, Chris File. Hi, Chris. Hello, Joe. How are you? What, Deci- have you? what have you done for your country today, Chris? Um, I roared, and I bawed, and... <laughs> you covered all your bases, really. I covered all of my bases that I thought I learned from the movie we're discussing today that I needed to do for my country. I spoke earnestly, or at least I'm about to, uh-huh. on this episode. Yeah, if that's, you... <laughs> that's what I learned about the film we're discussing today, what it means to be a... Uh, true American. If you were not already, uh, did not already get it given away to you by uh, the barnyard sounds that Chris was making, this week we will be digging into Lions for Lambs, the 2007 hand-wringing Iraq war movie directed by Robert Redford, starring the very A-list trio of Robert Redford, Meryl Streep, and Tom Cruise. Can you believe? That's my my Jonathan Van Ness. You did your best Lion and Lamb. I did my best Jonathan Van Ness. Well, I mean, those are some heavy hitters right there. What would Jonathan Van Ness say to them? But also, I'm sure it would have something to do with Oscar, no matter what Jonathan would be saying. He's like, it would smell like an Oscar. It's like rubbing an Oscar on your face for, you know, better pores. (laughs) Right, exactly. This will really just clear your pores right up. Truly, though, I mean, like when you say heavy hitters, these are like heavy hitters, heavy hitting. Like you, Meryl, Robert Redford... Tom Cruise all together. It's like you can make that movie today. You can make it in 2007. You can make it 20 years ago. And it's already in the conversation for Oscar. It's true. So, Joe, give us a little bit of prep on why, other than the heavy hitterness of it, this would have been an Oscar player. Sure. Um, I feel like this was a movie that came together very quickly. I think I read somewhere that from sort of green light to premiere was less than a year or a little over a year, something around that. Um, I get, I mean, to take it all back, like, you know, 2003, the United States invades Iraq. I remember, do you remember that Oscar ceremony? The 2002 Oscars where like it had just started, the war had just started and everything was very pitched and Michael Moore got booed off of the stage. And I feel like the national mood was, very hard to pin down <laughs> at that moment. Yeah, Watching this movie again really brought me back to that. We're like, 
there was uh, so many times conversations st- stopped like ground to a halt with like they flew planes into our buildings and like take like thank god we don't like we have a whole other slew of fucking problems but like nobody really talks like that anymore and watching this movie sort of made me grateful for that at least that we've come to some kind of if not like agreement about the war the war that by the way is still like going on um but we've sort of all settled on a way to talk about it right and back then we didn't back then we hadn't absolutely not at least in how we were responding to it in art (laughs) film did not respond very well in doing more than speaking in these like very arched very non-nuanced ways yeah this movie also reminded me a lot of the west wing where in season three of the west wing when it came back after september 11th and at some point in the season you could tell when when the the episodes that started production after 9-11 happened because the tone of everything really changes and you can tell like aaron sorkin trying to be like here is how we are going to talk about the world now that we are living in a post 9-11 world. And it took a long while for that show to figure out what it wanted to say. It was sort of like spouting off in all directions. Um, And Hollywood was sort of that way too. I think a lot of the way that they responded, and I think you can get into this in a little bit, um, is they didn't make a whole lot of movies about, the war specifically for a few years. I think um, the story about this movie is screenwriter Matthew Michael Carnahan, who was kind of a momentary big deal, as I remember it, where he wrote the script for The Kingdom, which was another 2007 movie that also dealt with the war in the Middle East and, you know, military action in the Middle East. And that was his first script. And at some point or another, there was this sort of buzz around Matthew Michael Carnahan. His brother is Joe Carnahan, who wrote that movie Narc, that also sort yep. of had Oscar buzz. Ray Liotta had a little bit of like supporting actor buzz for that. That movie was always a movie that like male critics seemed to really like a whole lot more than I did. Um, not to like overly gender things, but like I feel like that was very much a people who liked gritty cop drug movies were very sort of enamored with the way Joe Carnahan wrote about that kind of thing and. Um, I think when Matthew Michael Carnahan started coming up and he wrote The Kingdom, which I don't even know if that's a good movie. Honestly, I saw that movie in a theater and I don't remember whether that's a good movie or not. He also wrote the adaptation for the American version of State of Play, um, wrote the screenplay adaptation for World War Z, wrote the screenplay for Deepwater Horizon, hasn't done anything since then. But I think at some point around this, like, the kingdom lions for lambs time he was kind of he it reminds me of the buzz that's around taylor sheridan these days which oh god is the next great male screenwriter i feel like hollywood's always sort of looking for who's gonna tell the next you know red-blooded american stories right am i crazy i don't who's know. gonna give us a steak every that, time that's, out. that's basically it do you remember this talk around Ugh. matthew michael carnahan at all or it was this did i read no too much, you're not crazy i mean shud back then well as you had mentioned that the movie had a fast turnaround from script to production th- i that was definitely wrapped up in it or at least in my memory of this is like you have this hot new screenwriter 
that's so good that it's like we have to make this movie right now. Yeah, the story is that Matthew Michael Carnahan was flipping through the channels trying to find the USC game on TV and flipped past a news report of something from the war where Humvee had flipped over and um, these soldiers had died in like shallow water or some terrible, horrible story like that. And Carnahan talked about how he flipped past that because he didn't want to pay attention to it and he wanted to get to the game or whatever. And then felt incredibly guilty about that and incredibly sort of... uh, you know, self-flagellating a little bit about how this is how we are. This is how America is. We don't want to, we want to send our boys to war, but we don't want to pay attention to what's happening there. And that because of that, we don't hold our politicians or um, our news gathering institutions to task for these things. And I think the product of that hand wringing is a really hand wringing movie about what is to be done about this war that, was still ongoing. I think by this point, Bush had been reelected. And as I remember it, very soon after Bush got reelected, the sort of that ball of yarn began to unravel and public opinion on that administration really started to turn around. And so by the time you get to 2007, it's not as daring. It's not very daring at all to take a stand against, you know, the Iraq war. And even still, this movie... um wanted to sort of wrangle with with not like real world not like what's happening on the ground but like what's happening in america that supports this kind of war without end war without purpose we had already you know it had already been exposed that we had gone into iraq with false intelligence and we were starting to as a country grapple with how we had been so duped and i think this movie really wants to grapple with that and as a director robert redford was a very receptive audience he got this script sent to him and immediately wanted to go into production on this and so redford this like lauded hollywood director obviously like you know royalty hops onto the script and then Uh, Tom Cruise had just taken over United Artists, had just sort of resurrected the studio United Artists, which goes back to the 1920s and Mary Pickford and like this like great, you know, historical Hollywood studio that had gone to neglect. And so Tom Cruise and his producing partner, Paula Wagner, uh, resurrected United Artists. And this was going to be the first film of the new United Artists. So there was a lot of pressure on cruise as well and so you end up with this movie that has a lot of very quick momentum has a lot of very quick faith in it and then now a lot of pressure because this needs to do really well for the studio and so you pack this cast with tom cruise meryl streep and robert redford as these three sort of representing almost like the three pillars of America, like, you know, academia, the press and politics. And the three of them sort of engage in this, even if they're not all in scenes with each other, engage with this dialectic with each other about how we got into this and how we can get out. And that's the movie. And I think it's quite literally the movie. It's quite literally the movie. The the other aspect there you have you do actually see 
the battlefield. You have a storyline running. It's Robert Redford's students, which we'll get into the plot, but you do actually see warfare as well. And that's the one that has probably the closest to the human element too, which is what I largely think is missing from this movie. And yet I feel like those are the weakest, some of some of the weaker scenes. In <laughs> those the scenes are also pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Like, I just don't think they're filmed all that well, you know. But it's also it's also at least playing to something that we can engage to, even though if it does it poorly. Whereas, like you were saying, these kind of talking head scenes where it's, you know, Meryl and Tom Cruise sparring off of each other. It's very talking points. It's very hot yeah. topics. It's very much a day of hot topics on The View, except it's, you know, Meryl and Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is essentially your Elizabeth Hasselbeck, I guess, in this scenario that I've just created for us. Um, it should also probably be mentioned that this script got sent into production so quickly, probably because the writer's strike was looming. And... And we knew it was going to happen too. It was one of those things where oh, it was yeah, this, that strike it was, was coming the slowest car crash. Yeah. And I mean, it was released during the time because this is also the year that there wasn't a televised Golden Globes because of the strike. Right. This was released in early November in the United States. Um, and Carnahan, I read an interview that Carnahan gave to. Um, Rotten Tomatoes actually back in November 2007 to promote the movie and in it he he talks about his you know inspiration for writing this film and originally also that he wrote it originally as a play which yeah we can tell yeah like, we can tell he even it's mentions like a, in the interview he's like you can still tell you can he's like you can pretty much tell this is originally conceived as a play which is kind of I don't know if it's necessarily throwing Redford under the bus, but it's like fully acknowledging that like, yeah, this still seems pretty stage bound, which yes, it does. He said that they, he made the decision to make it into a movie rather than a play because a play couldn't deliver the scenes of battle, which true. Although I wonder if a play could have just, I wonder if a play dealing with those things off stage might've been more, effective well thematically cohesive right because this is a movie about people who sit in classrooms and offices and and make decisions or talk about these things that are happening without having any the whole title lions for lambs refers to the idea of soldiers lions being led into battle by lambs by people who have no battle experience or you know sense of the life and death issues at stake. And so, um, sorry. Oh, so in this interview, um, Carnahan, so he says he, he didn't think they could do the, the battle scenes. He, he compared it to the scenes in Rushmore where they filmed the like helicopter Vietnam battles in Rushmore. And he's like, I didn't want to do that. I was like, okay, fair enough. Which is a little reductive of what the stage can do, especially yeah. 10 years ago. So in this interview, though, he mentions a couple things, projects that he had had on the horizon. He had uh, something, a script called The Zebra Murders about racially motivated serial killings in 1970s San Francisco. Um, He was working on an adaptation of James Elroy's White Jazz. Neither one of those two projects came to fruition. And I wonder if the writer's strike had something to do with that. Because clearly they would have, you know, put those two things on the back burner. And by the time the writers were back to working again, 
Lions for Lambs had bombed so severely. Like this made so little money. It was a $35 million budget. And I think it made like $17 million or something like that. 15, 15. Okay. Um, and it was because it was so high profile because it was Redford and Streep and Cruz, you couldn't really like hide it. You couldn't really, um, I don't know. So I especially in comparison to the United artists thing where there was actually a lot riding on this movie doing well. Yeah. The new United artists ended up making, Two Tom Cruise movies. They made this one and Valkyrie, and which was decently well received, as I recall. And it um, made money, probably not as yeah. much money as they would have wanted or needed. I will it say, to. for a movie that did pretty well and you know was as high profile as it was, I remember so little about Valkyrie besides like the eye patch. Like that's basically all I've got in my memory bank about that movie. Um, and then so like within a few years, they did the Fame remake. They did Hot Tub Time Machine, and then. United Artists went away again. And now the only time you ever hear about it is when a new Bond movie comes out because they have the copyright, they're the copyright holder, MGM and United Artists. Anyway, um, yeah, I feel like that's all. I think it was very timely. I think the stars were very big. What, I don't know. What do you, why do, why would you say we had such high Oscar hopes for Lions for Lambs? Well, definitely there were a lot of movies that were finally discussing the war in Iraq and they all, this one was actually the most probably politically motivated. The rest you're talking about more human dramas or thrillers. And they were kind of the big ones, at least were one right after the other this year. You have in the Valley of Ayla, which was led by Tommy Lee Jones. It's like a, his son goes MIA after serving and that ended up getting Tommy Lee Jones and Best Actor nomination. Then the very next month, you have Rendition, which also starred Meryl Streep kind of in this villain role. And um, was kind of overshadowed as well by the relationship with Reese Witherspoon and Jake Gyllenhaal at the time. Directed by Gavin Hood, who was coming off of um, a foreign language success with Oscar. So that one probably had a high profile, if not as high as Lions for Lambs, which came the very next month. And if I told you that Lions for Lambs was the highest grossing of all of those, I mentioned that it made 15 million. Would that surprise you? Kind of. I I, I would have guessed that uh, Rendition would have made a little bit more money, but I guess Rendition really, it really did not. Tanked. That was the thing about all of these movies, because at the time there were also these stories that came out that audiences didn't want to see these movies because they all open and they kind of cratered. Um, In the Valley of Ayla was from Warner Independent when Warner Brothers had their own indie label. So, So like that you can kind of qualify a little bit, but that was one of the major talking points of that year, how there were all these movies and all of them were bombing. But Lions for Lambs actually made the most money, which I guess is kind of a marginal. That is wild fact right gavin hood's an interesting one to think about because you're right he got the was it the foreign language oscar for satsi or did he yes okay so that happens then they bring him like you know now american success is yours for the taking and rendition tanks x-men origins wolverine is awful ender's game is awful and a huge bomb and then everybody's like well that's that for that career and then he like very quietly makes eye in the sky which i think is a really good movie and now and i feel like the, the cycle begins again yeah 
where now it's like, oh, hey, have you heard of this Kevin Hood guy? He made this really underrated movie. It's it's bizarre. It really is. But in terms of Oscar, like, you know, there's always a certain level of like the prestige movies that acknowledge war, at least if they're not outright war movies, come into the conversation, even just it. They don't. So this movie, Lions for Lambs, would have been a part of the conversation probably just with Redford attached. Redford's a very famous, outspoken liberal. Um, True. And political activist. And always kind of has the prestige following him. Like, you think of even that kind of small-looking old man in the gun that's coming out this year. Like, Which I think looks pretty good. I think I it looks kind of good. It looks. I like David light. Lowry a lot. Yeah. Um, like I would not look at that trailer, and if you divorce it from the Robert Redfordness of it, I would not think that would be an Oscar player. But it's in the conversation because it's him. Um. Yeah. So, but on the on the Rock War movie thing, it's interesting to see what in comparison to how these movies were received and how much they made, I do think that there was an element that audiences didn't want to talk about it in the way that they, audiences didn't want to experience it in the way that it was being delivered to them. Because I remember there was a lot of conversation at the time about like a lot of sort of indignant conversation, a lot of it coming from, if not the right, then sort of, you know, maybe right, sympathetic people who were like America doesn't want to see these movies and stop making these movies about how, you know, America's fucking up in this war and, you know, the public doesn't want it. So clearly we should stop making it. I remember a lot of that conversation happened around stop loss, which was an early 2008 movie, but I always sort of wrap it up with those 2007 movies because I feel like that was the trend. And really up until there were big ones, right? One right after the other. Um, and by and large, with the exception of Tommy Lee Jones, which was kind of a surprise nomination that morning. A huge surprise, yeah. Great performance, though. Um, yeah. I think a lot of what it is, the a lot of these movies are giving just kind of this empty righteousness, particularly this movie, that I think maybe people on the left saw through. Yeah. And it's a little surprising coming from Robert Redford, who I think takes a lot of nuance with things that he's serving this really thin narrative that sounds more right than left because it's so ill-formed and just like proselytizing to us. Well, and Redford wasn't exactly this guy who was like all politics all the time in his movies. Like his biggest Oscar success, obviously, is he won in 1980 for ordinary people he was sort of the quintessential actor who wants to direct who hollywood sort of came running at with with awards which is not to slight ordinary people in any way i think that's a movie that kind of got shit for beating raging bull and for a long time people were like oh god ordinary people only won because hollywood darling robert redford directed it." well and and people still shit on that movie um his career is very interesting because the prestige does kind of follow him. But if you take ordinary people out of the equation, as far as directing is concerned, there's not a whole lot of at least contemporary receipts to follow up on that. Um, 
he was nominated again in Quiz Show uh, in, uh, that was 1994, 1992. There was a River Runs Through It, which he wasn't nominated for, but was an Oscar player, Oscar winner. And then once you get to The Horse Whisperer in 1998, the rest of the the movies that he's directed are certainly seen as unfortunate. You have The Horse Whisperer. Yeah. Legends of Bagger Vance, this Oof. Lions for Lambs, the Conspirator, yeah, which is kind of forgotten, and then the company. Nobody remembers the Conspirator. Yeah, the company you keep, the Shia LaBeouf film. Wow, which barely even like got released. Which I'm probably the first person to mention it since 2012. Yes, it's true. <laughs> yeah, he's somebody who I feel like his, you know, no pun intended, his legend kind of has outlived not its usefulness, but I feel like at this point you're just like, Oh yeah, Robert Redford, like Hollywood royalty. And yet like his movies don't seem to connect with the people you would assume even like uh, all is lost, which he didn't direct, but he starred in. It was a one man show. It was like a huge acting showcase. And you would think, Oh yeah, like fucking Oscars love Robert Redford and they'll clearly nominate him. And they didn't. Um, and so it's like, okay, there's, I don't know. So you, you wonder, and yet like he's such a huge presence in the movie ecosystem for Sundance, if nothing else. Well, and it goes back um, to the point that we were talking about in our Ask the Dust episode, where the idea of old Hollywood and the pillars of what the Hollywood establishment was of a certain era, the buzz kind of always follows them around, even if it has been some time since they've had something to back it up. Yeah. And he's one of those people. Yeah. I think if, because if you, if you make it happen once, everybody's just like, Oh, well, you know, lightning can always strike again. And you would almost want to be like, Oh, well, I don't want to be the fool who ruled it out. And then it happens. It's interesting, um, though, who gets to stay in that kind of conversation and who doesn't. Because I think a lot of the more contemporary examples of the people who maybe on their second go around or at least the follow up to Oscar and whatever Oscar success they have, I feel like people are not given the type of chances that Robert Redford's era of person of famous person gets to have as far as being yeah. in the conversation because Robert Redford no, will true. be in the conversation now until he dies whenever he makes something yeah no that's very true can you are you thinking of anybody specifically when you're thinking of people who didn't get that kind of leeway I mean this is maybe the most extreme example but think of someone like M. Night Shyamalan sure you know, because after the sixth sense, everybody was putting Unbreakable on Oscar thoughts and that type of conversation. And that's not Unbreakable, I think, is great, but it doesn't really register on that level, even if Sixth Sense hadn't been an Oscar thing. And then, yeah. by and large, people start hating his movies, and he's just, it will take a miracle for him to ever be in that kind of conversation again. Because yeah, I think the Shyamalan conversation. Yeah, the Shyamalan conversation is a little interesting to me, and not quite for the same reasons because he was such a genre like focused director, and he also like 
he fucked with his audiences yeah. pretty blatantly. Like it's an extreme example. It's an extreme example. Uh, but and also the fact that he hadn't won, where I feel like winning, there is something to that idea of like this person has an Oscar on their mantle that you know it's a bubble that it you know you get to stay in it for at least a little bit you have to be like you have to go mel gibson crazy to exit that bubble essentially and even then like, mel gibson never left like, the bubble unfortunately well, but, and also and but like and even with like apocalypto like even when he was like that far you know it was still out in the conversation person land it was still in the conversation. Passion of the Christ still got like tech nominations. So yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, so, so yeah, I should probably get into the movie. Yeah. We're kind of talking about it as a outright abject failure. <laughs> Tell us about the film and the context of the film, how the movie fails. Sure. Um, so essentially it is two, conversations this is why we talk about feeling very stage bound there are two one-on-one conversations that happen in offices one of them is between uh a republican senator sort of architect of the war played by tom cruise who is this sort of like republican wunderkind who i'm not sure who they were trying to pattern it off of to the film's credit it's not like it's a thin gloss on any particular person. I'll, that's probably the only credit I'll give that character because I think a lot of the film's failings are the fact that that character is supposed to be this very persuasive, charming sort of devil in a suit and tie. And yet he's so very obviously sort of insincere and not treacherous, but like he's so very clearly the bad guy that it makes Meryl Streep who plays this journalist who is interviewing him look like a dupe for not seeing through him more uh, readily that it takes her a lot of like some, this like moment of revelation to just be like, Oh, he's probably bullshitting me. Um, so Street plays this journalist who helped kind of make this guy's career. She wrote a Time cover story about him being the future of the Republican Party. And so uh, he has called her, sort of handpicked her for this interview that he wants to give where he's giving her the inside scoop on this change of strategy for the war in Afghanistan um, that he wants. Essentially, he wants to use her to sell this idea of this essentially it's not quite the surge, but I think it's supposed to be akin to the surge, right? Um, to the American public. And he's doing this in the guise of, I'm giving you this great access and I'm giving you an hour of my time and you can ask me anything. And Streep is very kind of wishy-washy. Like she asks the questions and she's like clearly coming from an adversarial position, but she's so easily, flustered i don't know i don't like this performance by streep at all i don't know about you i feel like it's dancing around the edges of having a point of view but it never really has a point of view and i think where she's supposed to be this kind of judy miller-esque like person who you know had helped sell the iraq war to the american public and you know the 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 press dropped the ball 
on that one. And so a lot of this movie is talking about that through this Streep character. I think a lot of this part of the storyline is very undercooked as far as the relationships go. Because what you're saying about her and you don't think it's a good performance, it's almost like she's supposed to be more you kind of mentioned it, that she's supposed to be more wooed. Tom Cruise is supposed to be more evil and charismatic at the same time and probably sexier. Um, yeah. At this, this is the point in Cruise's career where like, you can't view him as a sexual being anymore. No. And I, so he's still very handsome on like a technical level. Well, and I would also say he's, I felt like he was, even though it's not, it's at like a six when it needs to be a nine or a 10, but yeah. I thought he was the best performance in the movie in the way that I always think Tom Cruise is where he needs to be when he is cast as someone unlikable and probably with manipulative tactics. Um, I think he plays that really well, just naturally, even if he's not doing enough of that in this movie. Interesting. I feel like it's a better movie if he does a better job of like playing the I'm going to level with you card with this journalist Mm -hmm. where where he sort of like gets on her level and is like, look, I know this all looks bad. Look, I know it's gone, you know, terrible so far and like does better work at trying to mask his real intentions and tries to. Because what he essentially is trying to do with the Streep character is, like, use the language of Republicans at this time, which was victory, which was, you know, surrender is not an option, which was, you know, mistakes have been made, but we are the only people who can do this. And I don't know. I feel like it's more insidious if it comes at Streep's character from a less obviously adversarial angle. But that's... That, well, no, that's so the, interesting, too. I think uh, <laughs> both of our ideas here acknowledge that you you need some kind of push and pull with Meryl's character, and her she just lies dead on the page. There's not really much Meryl yeah. can do with it. Um and I think her character is so very much a Judy Miller stand-in that yeah. like she's that character does the thing that I was glad they didn't do with Cruz, where I can't really pick who Cruz is supposed to be. You know exactly who she is supposed to well, be. Well, and it's she's so thinly drawn at the same time, too, that it just kind of reeks of that whole trope of this is the only female character in a movie made by a room full of men. Yeah. And so that's half the movie is them in this conversation. You get her later with her editor played by the guy from Veep, whose name I can never Kevin remember. Dunn. Kevin Dunn. Kevin Dunn. Um, who's great. But like, um, he's, f- you know, he's a very funny actor. And obviously this is not a funny movie or a funny part. He was in our last um, movie, 1492. And I flat out screamed when he <laughs> came on the screen because we know. He was Kevin, so incongruous in well, that. We know Kevin Dunn is playing like newspaper editors, teachers, senators. What's my single, what's my single favorite line of dialogue he's ever done in a movie ever? Can you guess? Oh God. No, I cannot guess. He's the guy who says she said fuckabees in yes! I Heart Huckabees, which is my f- it's it's in a movie that I love and in a movie that is full of incredibly funny lines. The way he says she said fuckabees is <laughs> I mean, the panic in his voice. It's 
honestly, it was award worthy of something. Give it like invention award to give it. It was so good. Um, so the other half of this movie is Robert Redford plays a college professor and he has called in this sort of low effort, but apparently gifted student of his played by Andrew Garfield, who even when I saw this movie, I didn't know who Andrew Garfield was and I I and I somehow managed to forget. I always figured the first time I saw Andrew Garfield in anything was when I saw The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus and he was in that cuz I hadn't seen um Boy A and I hadn't seen I'm Well this is maybe one Is this not thing. post um no, this is pre social network. Yes, it's definitely pre-social network. But when um, I tell you I about broke my neck with whiplash when I started this movie and the first shot is Andrew Garfield and I didn't even know yeah. he was in this movie. Yeah. These scenes with these two are the most that make me th- think of Aaron Sorkin stuff because it's very much um, Redford trying to sort of walk Andrew Garfield's character into this conversational cul-de-sac where almost like, you know, trying to like back him into a cage where he's like going to eventually like, it's almost like the prestige where he's like, and then the big reveal. Yeah. Um, he's setting him up to knock him off his ass. Right. Essentially Redford sees in this kid through some sort of possibility for greatness and greatness is defined sort of like, uh, sort of amorphously in this um i i mostly think redford wants this kid to like run for congress someday or something like that even though there's a lot of like this kid's a cocky shithead and he talks about like you know hard-working people versus no nothings in congress and like a whole lot of like stuff that to me very much screams this is stuff my dad says around the dinner table and yet later in the movie he mentions how like his parents seem like they're more liberal than he is, or at least like are trying to get him to do more with his life. And it sounds, I don't know. Um, I feel like this is another character that's sort of drawn very thinly. He's supposed to be this, like we all had that asshole Republican in our like college class who would pipe up at every single thing. And, sort of what did he what does he say in this movie oh needle exchange programs they do a flashback to a class that they had had early on in this kid's freshman year or whatever where he's talking about needle exchanges and you know why don't you just have a designated lane for drivers or for drunk drivers it's the same if you want to coddle criminals. yeah these idiot non-equivalencies um, right so this is the kind of kid that Redford sees something in and wants to have this whole conversation to get him to essentially give a shit. Yeah. And so Carnahan, when he gave an inter- this interview, he said essentially like Garfield was the stand in for him in that like this was this apathetic kid who he wanted to have somebody sort of like shout some sense into him to get him to give a crap about what's going on. He's, you know. Don't be such a slacker. Pay attention to what's happening around you and then do something about it. Um, And so that's that conversation. And then interwoven in between these two things, the sort of the events that are uniting these two conversations is Derek Luke and Michael Pena play two students who were former students of Redford's who were so inspired by Redford's. This is a little bit of pay it forward in here where um, Redford was like, do something to make a difference. And they were like, okay, um, a will do this presentation for like 
mandatory service as part of one's education um which is an interesting little proposal and i'm like go on like maybe make a movie about that but um that was also what made me think of the west wing because full-on like i'm pretty sure like charlie young's character the charlie young character like has that idea in the west wing at some point um and then what they really get inspired to do is enlist and like go overseas and Redford tries to talk them out of it and they go. And then a big chunk of this movie is they get shot down over the mountains in Afghanistan and they're stranded on the top of this mountain and there's a firefight and it keeps cutting back to them and they're, you know, it doesn't look good for our guys. And at the same time, you're realizing that like, this is the operation that Cruz's character is trying to, put into motion and trying to sell to the American people. So it's this continuum of, um, you know, these bright and talented kids who go off and get sent into war and there are no good reasons. And then they get, I mean, it's no real spoiler to say they get killed by the end because like, obviously, um, and that's your movie, (laughs) you know, that little eye roll obviously is something you could probably say to most aspects of this movie. Yeah. It's just a lot of talking head. It's a lot of people talking at each other and at the audience for like 90 minutes. The, okay. So this movie is only 90 minutes long. It feels like 90 days long, but it also reeks of the like, they chopped out a half hour in the last minute to try to save the thing. Like, did you feel like it was yeah. one of those movies? Like, the legend tells that it, Collateral Beauty at the last minute lost 45 minutes. Is it, that true? Apparently, Good that's Lord. what I read at the time. But um, it does feel like somebody behind the camera gave the, like, wrap it up signal. Yeah. And they're like, well, let's bring it on home, boys. Or it was like, it feels very much like they tried to cut their losses at one point. Yeah. So this movie gets released. The, it's just torn up by critics 27% on Rotten Tomatoes which you know flawed metric at all like that's a lot that's that's a low number um savaged by critics, critics... there's a, quit, a quote from uh Kyle Smith of oh the God, New York Post this. that is just really spot on with what the movie is it's like if you want to listen to a bunch of pompous three and talking heads meet the press is free Well, and that's sort of, that's what sunk the movie in a nutshell in that like this conservative, you know, critic at this conservative publication gives it this like total in your face, like shut up libs critique and all the more left leaning publications and critics are like, yeah, pretty much. (laughs) It's something that sort of united everybody was just like, oh my God, was this an overly talky slog of a movie and I do think without any question kind of... of all of these Iraq war movies of that year, even the ones that were kind of more tangential to it. Like, um, do you remember John Cusack's Grace is Gone? Where his uh, wife I've never, I never saw it, but I remember hearing about it. Even yes. of all of yeah. those ones that kind of deal with it less overtly, this is unquestionably the worst the worst of them yeah but you also kind of have to wonder because this was in succession of a few if critics were tired of these terrible movies that didn't discuss it well or at least they're not all terrible i think there was there was a frustration there for sure it was like a mounting thing and this is the one that because it was at the end of the line got really dumped on yeah 
So I was able to dig up a For Your Consideration poster for this, which, you know, if you're listening, check out the Tumblr. This at oscarbuzz.tumblr.com. We'll post it there. Um, A couple interesting things about the poster. The actual, like, the movie poster, movie poster is actually, um, I I pictured in my head still, even for such a bad movie, because it's, like, the big three movie star faces. It's Redford. It's Streep with her, like... Tina Fey glasses um, because she's a reporter and she's, you know, bookish Um, and then Cruz. Um, And so this for your consideration poster is just Streep and Cruz. Like that's the photo because Redford is the director and he's going to be self-effacing about it. Um, All three of the stars have been submitted as supporting actors, which again, it feels like false humility in a way. All right. Um, They mentioned besides like, for your consideration, best picture, best director, the actors, the screenplay. They mentioned the score, the Mark Isham score, which I found notable only because it kept making me think of a certain studio logo music. And I can't, I still can't put my finger on it. And it's been driving me crazy for a day and a half. Um, if you want to listen to <laughs> the Lions for Lambs score listeners um, and come back at me with what you, what studio logo you think it sounds like. Please do. I kept wanting to say Tribeca, but it, I listened to Tribeca and it's not that. Um, anywho, the quotes on this poster. There's first of all, there's a quote from Armand White, which if you're getting Armand White quotes for your for your consideration poster, consider that you've already lost. That quote uh, is also definitely. I didn't go back and read the review, but it is one thousand percent the like kickoff to like 4,000 words trashing the movie. (laughs) He says the best direction, the best directing of Robert Redford's career ellipsis, which you know that he goes on (laughs) ad nauseum about how terrible Robert Redford is. after That probably. Yeah. Or how crappy quiz show was or something. The big centerpiece quote is from Manola Dargis from the New York times. Um, Mr. Cruz pours on his charismatic intensity and lights up the board with alternating flashes of charm, sincerity, gravity, indignation, and outrage. And you think, wow, Manola really liked that movie. No. (laughs) No, she didn't so much. Uh, The last line of her review uh, at the Times, uh, it tells us everything most of us know already, including the fact that politicians lie, journalists fail, and youth flounders. Mostly it tells us that Mr. Redford feels really bad about the state of things. Welcome to the club. So... Yeah, Manola wasn't super enthused about that movie any more than we were. 27% Rotten Tomatoes. Um, you want to talk a little bit about the Oscars that year? I feel like I don't want to get into it too much just because we're going to have other 2000 movies that... There's a lot of really great 2007 examples that I'm sure we'll get into. So yes, we will, we will keep it brief because this is a wonderful year to discuss. I always think it's interesting. The Meryl Streep movies that don't get nominated for her, that she doesn't get at this point in the, you know, it feels like there's more that she does, that she does get nominated for. That could have been a podcast in and of itself is just Uh, like Meryl's non nominations. Why? Um, I, I, Definitely. Um, and like at this point, there's nominations that we kind of forget have happened. I always forget that she was nominated for Into the Woods. Yeah. And maybe that's how I feel about that performance. Yeah. And at this point, she's not always getting nominated for great work, which is why I think when we were first excited about the post last year, we were like, this is a 
great one. We can all get excited about this. And it just kind of never really happened. Well, and Lions um, for Lambs comes. So 2007, obviously, like the Devil Wears Prada was the year before. And she kind of emerged as the should have won of that year for anybody who wasn't maybe fully sold on Helen Mirren and the Queen. I think most people kind of settled on like, wait, but Meryl was giving like this really fantastic and iconic performance in a movie that like that movie was the beneficiary. The devil wears Prada was the beneficiary of a lot of like second, second look appraisals that really like finally came around on it. So I think by 2007, you looked at the year and you were like, she's in lions for lambs and rendition, both movies directed by Oscar winning directors about this very timely topic. Obviously Oscar is going to go for it because it's so timely. Um, both of them supporting roles. So clearly like she's an, you know, she's a leading lady in supporting roles. She's got an advantage there. I feel like we fell for a lot of uh, false narratives <laughs> there. Uh, false premises where it's just like two movies are better than one. Yeah, not really. <laughs> two bad movies are worse than two. Well, than yeah. one good one. Yeah. Than one good one. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's an interesting supporting actress year because it's a fascinating supporting actress year, 2007. So who were the nominees that year? Remind us. The nominees that year were Ruby D, American Gangster, Saoirse Ronan for Atonement, Tilda Swinton for uh, Michael Clayton, our obvious winner, uh, Amy Ryan for Gone Baby Gone, and Kate Blanchett for I'm Not There. So you kind of have this spread that never really locked down. Which you, hardly ever happens, and I love it. Hardly ever happens, because even Ruby D was kind of a late emergent player. Well, and that Ruby D won, won the SAG, right? Yes, and because she won the SAG, I mean, partly because she's a legend, too, it seemed like that was going to be a thing for this kind of small performance against even Kate Blanchett, you could maybe argue for being a lead and that one was winning prizes but there was also this negativity towards the performance because it felt like a stunt because she's playing bob dylan yeah so the spread on this amy ryan won the majority of critics awards um, and she won the big ones too because she won new york and la yeah blanchett wins the globe the non-televised globe as you mentioned earlier that that was Which... just it aired as a as, as a press conference, essentially, which is so weird to think about. And that's why nobody remembers that Julian Schnabel won Best Director for Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Or those, that... those winning results, I'm telling you, if the Globes had been televised, it would have changed some things in the results, I think. That was also, for the longest time, it was the only act, major acting award that John Hamm won for Mad Men until he won for the last season. He won the Emmy for the last season of Mad Men. Yeah. Um, and that was always sort of this like cruel irony. Well, um, and you mentioned Julian Schnabel, where it's like there was this almost final surge for Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and yeah. having a big televised win like that could have really pushed that movie for sure. Um, but then you so have then Ru- Ruby D wins the SAG, and then Sir Sharonin is this like you know preternatural like new talent on the scene and atonement. Was well, the best when, picture nominee who, which like was had just won the globe, and you didn't really know whether this was going. This was sort of the 
campaign choice, right? Where like the campaign for it was really strong. Yeah. And when Atonement was leading up, you didn't kind of know who was going to be the supporting player for that movie. Right. Ramal um, Gary got some notice and Vanessa Redgrave got some notice. Yeah. And it felt like I, if I remember correctly in the lead up to the movie actually premiering, it felt like Vanessa Redgrave was the one we were expecting. Sure. Because um, she's Vanessa Redgrave. Which brings us to the final one we're talking about, which I feel like was kind of the de facto winner at the time, too, when it's such a close race. It's the winner, Tilda Swinton, for Michael Clayton. Tilda was one of those people who her reputation up to that was such an outsider reputation and such a like strange, ethereal, weird performer that for a while, for the first few weeks after the nominations... I think there was a happy to have her nominated. Everybody loved her in that performance. Michael Clayton, oddly, a bit of trivia, the only movie to get multiple acting nominations in 2007. It got three of them for Clooney, for Swinton, and for Tom Wilkinson. No other movie got more than one acting nomination. And she's incredible in it. And I feel like you mentioned The Devil Wears Prada getting kind of a reassessment. I think late in the race she kind of got a little bit of a reassessment too that gave her a push especially as it was looking like michael clayton wasn't going to win elsewhere people i feel like spoke more loudly about her performance i feel like in my memory of it the maybe tilda sentiment happened like two days before the oscars and all of a sudden but all of a sudden everybody was like yeah maybe tilda and then by the time she won i remember being like wow we all dared to dream and it happened (laughs) one of my favorite oscar wins of all time both for the speech and just for the fact that like i loved that performance so much i love her so much um, but yeah, so Meryl would have been campaigned in that category for the best. It's like I said, it's not my favorite Meryl performance, so I'm not sad that it didn't get nominated. It's still very interesting to think about the things she does get nominated for sometimes and versus this, which I think yeah. some of the more like emotionally resonant stuff in the movie is the third act stuff where she's almost silent and just kind of taking it in, which is probably partly because she's so good doing that and she's so interesting to watch in moments like that in other films as well but it it has more impact because we've just been like yelled at for an hour and 15 minutes and now somebody gets to be quiet for 10 minutes fair so ruby d wasn't nominated for the globe do you want to do you remember who was who was the uh, usurper for the globe nomination in that category it was emily blunt no. Oh, it, oh, that's right. I'm, she won for that TV movie with Bill Nye. Right. Emily Blunt got the Globe nomination the year before for uh, for Devil Wears Prada. No, this was Julia Roberts for Charlie Wilson's War. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was that. Um, I will say I do want to bring up one thing. Uh, Lions for Lambs didn't get a whole lot of awards attention, but what it did get a nomination for Meryl Streep in the AARP Movies for Grownups Awards uh, for 2007, which I want to talk about a little bit because um, the AARP Awards that year, I want to give them credit for stepping outside the box a bit. So their Best Actor Award, they nominated Denzel Washington for American Gangster and Tommy Lee Jones for In the Valley of Ella and Tom Hanks for Charlie Wilson's War, Richard Gere for that movie The Hoax, which I had fully forgotten was a movie. Um, but the winner was Chris Cooper for Breach, which is a cool little award. Breach was really like an underrated little movie that year. And 
Are we sure that this is not these awards are not given out by TNT and not AARP? Like Wait, why? Because all of these are these movies are movies that you can definitely watch on TNT <laughs> within the next three days. What a scandal that would be if like they were the ones pulling the strings behind uh, behind there for that. So Julie Christie won for Away from Her, which was an Oscar nominated performance. But like Darjeeling Limited beats Juno for best comedy. Uh, Tony Gilroy for Michael Clayton beats out the Coen Brothers and Julian Schnabel and Mike Nichols. I don't know. I think it's a lit. It's an interesting little. The best movie that year was The Savages. Okay. That's cool. Okay. That's you just cool. won me. You just won yeah. me. Right. I don't know. I find these little, you know, sort of side awards fascinating. Who even knows? Who is even? Who who even showed up to accept their AARP award? Movies for grownups. Aside oh. from okay, so aside from the inherent condescension of movies yes. for grownups, of course, of course. First of all, Lions for Lambs is not a movie for grownups. This was a movie built for children, Pitched where it's like kids. It's yeah. like built for like we are going to talk down to you. Yes, no grown up yeah. wants that. No, I know that's not grown up. No. Also, their best grown-up love story that year went to Hairspray, which... Okay. okay. Sure. Kind of progressive. John Travolta dressed as a in drag as in Christopher Walken. That's your grown-up love story? It has okay. love stories. It's also funny yeah. to me to think of AARP tangentially giving an award to John Waters. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Supporting actress nominee that year, Fernanda Montenegro for Love in the Time of Cholera. So Oof. how about that? How about that? Um, yeah. Any last thoughts on Lions for Lambs before we jump into the IMDb game? Uh, I'm very curious to see where you think that this movie falls in the lineup of quality for the movies that we watched. Because if this is not the worst movie that we've talked about so far on this podcast, it is the one that I would be least likely to revisit. I'd watch it again before I watch Pay It Forward again. Okay, Pay It Forward's pretty bad, but Pay It Forward at least has kind of the laughability factor. Yeah, Like, of the tackiness true. of it. Like, you can kind yeah. of... This movie isn't Josh even fun to just like on a watch Meryl Streep talk level, which like that is a low bar to clear for me. I would yeah. watch Meryl Streep, you know, read the proverbial phone book, as people say. Um, and this one, it's I don't like watching her scenes. I don't like watching her act in this movie. It's very uh, uncomfortable. I don't know. I don't dig it. Yeah. So we can safely say that. The reason that this had failed Oscar buzz is because the movie is bad. The movie's really bad. The movie's really bad. And we didn't want to, and we also, we didn't want to have Iraq war movies yet. We didn't want to have Afghanistan war movies yet. Yeah. We were still a couple of years away from the Hurt Locker. I feel like that kind of broke a glass ceiling in more than a few ways. There was a Catherine Bigelow one, but also the fact that like, oh, like now we can, now for whatever reason, we feel like we can watch movies about this maybe because obama had been elected and i feel like we had maybe maybe that's it maybe there's a psychological thing where we hadn't yet shut that door yet we hadn't yet turned that corner i think there's a creative element to it too because the hurt locker has a certain take and a certain angle whereas like the review you mentioned this movie and a lot of the other movies just tell us things we already know they're not coming from an interesting point of view they're not illuminating in any way they're not tapping into like a unique aspect of our rage at the time yeah that's true that's very true 
Uh, IMDb game. With This is the fun little diversion that we do at the end of these episodes where we quiz each other about actors and we try and guess what are the four movies that IMDb lists as their most known for films. Uh, IMDb's algorithm is vague and mysterious, and that's what makes it a good time. So... I have picked one out for Chris. Chris has picked one out for me. Chris, do you want me to give to you first? I want to go first. Oh, okay. <laughs> I would like to go first because I have an interesting like addendum to what you're saying that makes this game fun and what makes the algorithm mysterious and sometimes suck. Marvel <laughs> has wreaked havoc upon this yes. game. And it makes uh, it so very has Harry difficult. Potter, by the way. Oh, yeah. Harry Potter as well for a lot of British stars um, in that. It's not interesting to guess that Scarlett Johansson has been in three Avengers movies and a bunch of other ones. Um, However, I have someone who is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, probably one you forget because his movies are not always treated like they're part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Your IMDb person is Ant-Man star Michael Pena, also star of Lions for Lambs. Yeah, okay. I like this. All right, um... Hmm. And no television and no voiceover? No television, no voice. Okay. Crash. Yes. Mm. That was unfortunate. Um, shit. There's a bunch of comedies. I'm like, was he in that? Um, is one of them Ant-Man? No. Okay. There was, Did you say that? Well, I will, not, I will not count that as one of your guesses because... Okay. Part of the reason why I picked him is because there is no Marvel in his. Yeah, that's good. Um, Michael Pena. God, he's such a he'll he, oh, he shows up in everything. Um, hmm. There's a comedy in there, right? It's like a big, broad comedy where he's like fourth build or something. No, no. Okay. There is a comedy in here. It is comedy with question mark <laughs> what year was that 2013 huh i will say it is qualified as a comedy you mean like that's what imdb listed as uh i would say that's what the hollywood foreign press association called it oh okay so 2013 was that weird year where all of their best comedy nominees were dramas <laughs> Where it was Nebraska and The Wolf of Wall Street and... One of those, um, which you haven't mentioned? One of those, which I haven't mentioned, is the one for Pena, right? Yes. Um, shit, what were the other ones that year? Her? No. Um, it's a big ensemble movie that he is never listed as a part of the ensemble because his Is he in American Hustle? He is in American Hustle! Wow, okay. All right. Um, so that's two. What are the years for the other two? 2012 and 2007. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, hmm. I'm going to need hints. Okay. The 2012 one starring someone who we can't get them nominated for an Oscar to save their life. Um, this is like one of those new auteurs. I feel like the storyline was how... Michael Pena and his leading co-star dove into major research for this movie. Very intense. This wasn't Be Kind Rewind. No. It was um, 
It's more of like a drama thriller about their profession. It's intense. It got like two restarts to try to get it back in theaters to get some Oscar talk for it. Shit. It's another one of those movies that all of the straight male critics adore. Right. Damn it. I'm not going to get it. Starring Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, um, 2012? 2012. Maybe I'm farther away from it now. They are Not cops. source code. It was a big deal that they oh, are cops. Oh, and... yeah. Um, not Rampart. That was the other one. Um, uh, what is it called? See, this is the problem with this movie is it had a move is it had a title. Uh, Something, it was a one word title. An accessory that you would put on your body is the third word of this title. <laughs> Oh, uh, end of watch. Yes. <laughs> okay, so the fourth one. I was like, body armor? What's happening here? End of watch. <laughs> no, yeah. fourth, the fourth one, I'm going to give you some major hints. It is yeah, star. Please, okay, we mentioned movie. American Hustle, directed by David O. Russell, one of David O. Russell's favorite repeated stars. Not recently. Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence? No. no. Um, Male stars. He is the star of this Jason movie. Jason Schwartzman. No. Um, he is on the poster holding a gun. Which, in 2007? Which, yes, which goes into the title of this movie. Major recurring David O. Russell stars from like the early sort of comedic David O. Russell. Was in I Heart Huckabees. Was in I Heart Huckabees. Wahlberg. Yes. With a gun. Oh, Hitman? No. No. What was it called? <laughs> shooter. Um, Shooter, right. Yeah, again, one word generic title. Shooter. Fucking Shooter. Fuck okay. Shooter. Yeah, that was bad. I'm sorry, Michael Pena. You're in a lot of things. Um, I am going to go down the Robert Redford as director tip. You mentioned earlier The Conspirator, the movie that nobody has seen, about the woman who housed the who housed John Wilkes Booth or John Wilkes Booth's... Yes. Yeah, anyway, um, after he shot Lincoln. Everybody remembers that story. Uh, lead actress in that film was Robin Wright. Robin Wright's four known fours. It's none of them are television and none of them are voice. All right. So no house of cards. I find that odd that the house of cards is not one of them. Um, Princess Bride. Correct. Forrest Gump. Correct. Um, Blade Runner 2049. No. Okay. One of these two, you have a decent shot of getting one of these two. You will never get in a million. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you would not get shooter. Um, one of them you've mentioned in this podcast before, which I know seems like a good hint, except like it just will drive you crazy. No, that'll drive that, me like, crazy because I feel like the water only, torture way. The only things yeah. I mention are the things that nobody ever mentions that movie. Um, ooh, okay, so I have two. She, there are two actors on the poster of this movie. She is not one of them, but she is the wife of one of them. Okay, she, it's very much the wife role. She, she was not the original wives. actress. She was not the original actress for this role. She was recast God. after um, I know what this is. another actress who won an Oscar later uh, dropped out. I know what this is. What's the, is the director going to help me? Who is the director? You mentioned him for sure. You mentioned him as, uh, as an example. You brought him up as an example in this very podcast episode. If I tell you the director, you're going to get it right away. I don't want to give it oh, away. Oh, okay. Um, it was this director's follow-up to a big smash hit, though. 
this director? It's a good movie. I can't but remember what so... I was literally just saying earlier in the episode. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mr. Oh, you think oh. it's a good movie? I think it's a good movie. Yeah, that's an unconventional. But it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't quite what people were expecting. Uh... <laughs> it's two people who are in Pulp Fiction together, and they're also in this movie. Um, oh, it's Unbreakable. Yeah, it's Unbreakable. unbreakable. Um... <laughs> Shout out to Blank Jack. Um, yeah, Julianne Moore was originally the actress. Yep, and that I knew. Uh, yeah. Um... So this next one is from 2007. I don't know if I've seen this movie. Um, is it the, that animated, half animated movie she did, The Future? No, but it's half animated. You're thinking of the Congress, but that was oh, way later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the Future is um, the Miranda July movie. Yes, which I have not seen. Which I have. Um, so weirdly, when you go on IMDb, she's the first person billed in this, but she does not play the title character in this because the title character is man. And it's a half animated um, movie. Sort of. It's like live action. That's like I think it was like rotoscope. Oh, it's or like Beowulf. CGI. Yeah, it's Beowulf. Wow, you got that way quicker than I thought. I've never seen Beowulf. Is it worth seeing? It is trash. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Um, it's available on Amazon Prime if you want to. Uh, <laughs> if you want to watch some trash. Yeah. Um, this was a very fun episode, Chris. I had a very good time talking with you about the. I also did. About a very crappy movie. Um, yeah, I think that's all there really is to say about that. That's our episode. If you want more of this at Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at this at oscarbuzz.tumblr.com. As I said, I'm going to put up that for your consideration ad for Lions for Lambs. Um, you can get all your information about where to subscribe to us. That would be wonderful if you're not already subscribed. Maybe you're testing us out. Hopefully this was a good sample for you. Uh, you should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Christopher, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can and should find me on Twitter. I am Chris V file. That's V F E I L. Um, I am also a contributing writer at the film experience. You can catch me there talking about soundtracks and lots of other things. Actresses, Oscars, actresses at the film experience. What? I never, never. (laughs) What do they think of these days? Um, (laughs) Yes. Follow me on Twitter. Follow him on Twitter. He's great. I am on Twitter also. I am at, uh, at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. And every day you can read me and my wonderful colleagues at Decider.com, covering film and television and everything that's on streaming. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork, Dave Gonzalez for his technical guidance. Please remember to rate us, review us, subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. A five-star review would be super appreciated. We are, after all, we love the accolades. We love the awards. We love some praise. We are only human. That is all for us this week, but we hope you will be back next week for more buzz. Bye. Bye. Everyone's a